We've all heard the phrase, that kind of thing doesn't happen in our town. But here on Midwest Murder, we will shatter that false reality. In fact, it happens more often than we know. And sometimes the details of the most horrific crimes that happen in our neighborhoods are lost in the back pages of newspapers, forgotten on our news channels, and eventually erased over time. We're here to talk about murder, diving into some of the most controversial cases in Midwest history. This show will not shy away from the morbid details of these horrific events and the often ugly truths behind them. What you will hear is a detailed timeline of events, perspectives from those closely involved, and analysis by experts. What you will feel is the darkness that surrounds each story, the innocence lost by the victims, and hopefully the justice that was ultimately delivered. Joan Alanto. Don Palumbo. Hello. Well, it's so good to be here. It is. I love, this is one of my favorite venues. I, I love it. I like to drink here. I like to podcast here. I like to hang out here. Yeah, it's a great room. Shout out to the Speakeasy here in Bismarck, where we are recording this episode with an awesome live audience. And we do appreciate our live audience. We also appreciate our fans who take a little bit of extra time to rate and review the show on iTunes. It's a pretty big deal for us. Not only does it inspire us to do better, but hey, it helps us get recognized out there in the podcast world. Don, what are folks saying about Midwest murder these days? They are saying things. Love, five stars, by... Katerin 04, C-A-D-A-R-I-N-O-4, or 04, pardon me. I love this podcast. I would be lying if I said it didn't scare me to be outside in the dark after listening to these, but this podcast is amazing. All the episodes are so detailed, and I love how both hosts are so animated with their voices and really get into the story. P.S. Shots has the best ranch ever. No lies in that Absolutely one. Absolutely, they do. Yeah. Thank you. Then could be five stars, four stars, by D. Meckle. Good Can't pod. win them all. No, we can't. Good pod. Can't stand, the, can't stand the explaining of things like, quote, a phone used to be connected to the wall, quote, I didn't, I didn't say that, or a record is music on a plastic disc, or saying, quote, the victim had Metallica on their CD player, which is an outdated form of music read by a laser. Why do people report this? It's your pod. Don't report it. 18-year-olds know what a phone booth is. Thank you for your feedback. But also... We recorded that episode in front of children, some of whom were not even born during 9-11, okay? So they probably don't know what a beeper is. Hey, it could be four stars. It's a lot of people don't know what a beeper is, to be right. fair. Or a pager, Yeah. right? So some and, people and like I think details. some of that was just us, us being not funny. And we were trying. We were trying. I was trying and to give life advice to, yeah. to 18-year-olds. Effort, effort counts. Recognize the effort, no, right? No, it's okay. But thanks for the four stars anyway. I would, I would also retort that I once had a fan tell me if I know what somebody, if I know what the killer ate for breakfast that morning, they want to know about it. So yeah. if a killer had a certain music in their car, I think that has relevance. And if it's the story I think it was, mm -hmm. the prosecutors used the music that was in the car to help they prosecute the a, case yeah. in the end. So anyways, thank you again for everybody who takes that time to review us. We, we love to hear from you guys. Uh, this episode is brought to you in part today by the Domestic Violence Crisis Center in Minot. That's the DVCC in Minot. We're really proud to be sponsored by them and to help offer some recognition out there that there is an alternative. If you are living in a cycle of violence in your life, you can find the DVCC at courageforchange.org. The crisis line is 
857-2200. Right now... Right now, especially during this time of the year where it's, it's, it's at the holidays, sometimes this is when people are the most vulnerable. And I just want to really remind everyone, if you know somebody who is facing a domestic violence crisis in their life, please encourage them to seek help. Please encourage them to find a way to break that cycle of violence because it will not break itself. You can find the DVCC. You can donate, especially if you don't live in the minor area. You can donate. It's courageforchange.org. Again, the crisis line, 701-857-2200. According to FBI statistics, 56% of domestic homicides occur after the victim has ended that relationship or in the process of leaving. And if you've been listening for a few episodes, you've heard that statistic a lot. I think it's important. Um, this, you know, I guess organizations like the, the DVCC are there to help you when you, when you need it, even when you think you don't need it. So definitely, definitely a worthy, worthy cause. And then also a big shout out to Manscaped. So let's talk about Jonah's balls. Okay. <laughs> That's not what we're here to do, but we do, we do need to talk for a minute about balls because we are sponsored in part also by Manscaped. You can save 20% off plus get free worldwide shipping by using the promo code Midwest Murder. And really, I, it's not just what they can do for your gentlemen. And I want to remind if you don't have gentlemen, if you're not using Manscaped, you have Neanderthals and nobody wants to deal with that shit. Okay. So you just get some, get some Manscaped. Go to go there. Use promo code Midwest Murder, and they have more. They can do more. They can do a lot more than just for your gentlemen, they right? Do. They have lots of they've things. They've got they've got the thing that works on your nose. What's it done? The it's the, the weed whacker. The weed whacker. Mm-hmm. Nobody wants to see some rogue agent flying out of your nose. Okay, so if you've got nose hairs, get a look in a mirror. Use a Manscapes tool. Don't do that. Nobody wants it. I don't want it. I don't like rogue operatives flying out of my nose, Don Palumbo. Nope, I don't want them. I've spent so, a lot of time with you. I don't want them either. Yeah, the do cool you want is, my guys poking out at you? You should, next, you, next you should you right really here? specify what you're saying about guys. Um, because <laughs> I didn't say no. gentlemen or Neanderthal. I said the no, rogue that's agents. That's fair. Okay. So. Uh, but uh, super cool products. The waterproof. The, the trimmers are waterproof. Um, the lawnmower 4.0 it uh, it reduces nicks, which is I, I feel like you don't want them there, and reduces the risk of ingrown hairs. You definitely you know. don't want to nick your Neanderthals. No. So if you go to Manscaped and you use the promo code Midwest Murder, you can save twenty percent off and get free shipping. That's twenty percent off with free shipping at Manscaped.com using Midwest Murder. Pretty fun, pretty awesome stuff. I I really do like it. I've used it. This morning before leaving my house. So too much. there you go. That's too much. Yeah. Well, we whatever. We it works. It. If it works, it works, Don. It does, but we I don't need to know that it worked this morning. Okay. Effectively, then, I'll like, add. But then it then it like puts a vision in my head and I just don't I just don't I just You don't, put the vision in no, your head. No, like you talking about it so much puts a vision in my head. I like, I Manscaped just, I just don't want it makes there. me. Well, anyway. So tonight's story Tonight's story is taking us to the end of the eighteen hundreds. So what was happening in America at the end of the eighteen hundreds? In the 1880s, uh, we saw the rise of Thomas Edison, Alexander Graham Bell. The nation was beginning to see the light at the end of the tunnel and sound transmitted across the nation. We were setting up phone lines, bridges were built, radio lines, railroad li- railroads were extended. In June of 1890, the United well, States... On, I, I feel like uh, one, 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 one thing about Thomas Edison, I watched on an episode of Drunk History that I think he was, he was, a, shady, he was a shady dude. Yeah, he might have been, yeah. That's true. He got he gets a lot of credit for it all, okay. though. You guys should check it out. June of 1890, preparations for the census begin using an automated tabulating machine. That was a historic moment because that company eventually became IBM. 
So in 1890, that's when the company who becomes IBM is created. In 1892, the General Electric Company was formed. 1895, the first United States patent for the automobile. Automobile. 1895, the first one. 1897, the very first Boston Marathon was ran with 15 runners. It was won by John McDermott. I'm going to go on There's some I'm, useless I'm, trivia for I'm you. I'm going to go out on a limb and say there were no women, but that's fine. Yeah, it's um, fine. it was probably all white guys, too. Mm-hmm. Um, January 10th, 1901, the first major oil discovery in Texas. So 1901, first major discovery of Texas oil. And then in 1902, the first movie theater in the U- United States opened in Los Angeles. 1902. That just, that, I don't know, it seems... seems Seems like it happened earlier than I would have expected it. And then in 1903, the first modern World Series of Major League Baseball was held. 1906, the San Francisco earthquake, estimated at 7.8 on the Richter scale. So, of course, again, this story spans decades. There's a lot going on. Those are some of the highlights. Did you know that you can also, because we we learned in, like, what is it, episode 10, I think, that you could, at this time... You could still mail your children by the U.S. Postal Service. That was legal. Mm-hmm, it was legal. A lot, a lot of weird shit was legal. You're about to find out. Yeah. Sometime in 1876, Brynhild Storset of Selbu, Norway, thought she found love at age 17, and with it, a way out of her miserable life. Her family was among the poorest in the village, so poor they couldn't afford hardwood for their fire. Every day, Brynhild scoured the forest for snurkvist, tiny dried-up twigs from spruce trees. Her life was pretty much an awful daily barrage of farm chores, mud, more chores, freezing cold, sleeping on hay, and being poor. Oh, and did I mention it was really miserable? Because it was. It seems like it. The last thing Brynhild wanted was to end up like her mother. Old, broken down, aged well beyond her years, and destitute. Brynhild was tall, strong. She had fair skin, radiant blue eyes. She was lusty and sexually venturesome. That combination attracted the son of a wealthy landowner. To Brynhild, he was her way out of squalor. The two hooked up often. Brynhild hoped to get pregnant. Eventually, she got her wish... And now he would have to marry her. So this is like 1876. Yes. She is a shady lady. If like this is No, that was her way out. Well, it was I, legit. I you had that. to marry she up. Is, she was trapping somebody. I get it. She's I like, mean, but pig but like, farming every day, man. This guy's rich. But I really like your modern way of saying the two hooked up often. Like yeah, in absolutely. like 1876. Like Blended on in there. What did she do? Like show her ankle? Like what I mean Yeah, and her bustiness. <laughs> so oh. busty. Yes. You show one piece of bosom, dudes are hard back then. That was it, man. That was porn. Okay? Do not ever say the word. And they bosom didn't even again, need need, they didn't even need manscape to get the job done. Didn't matter. Free plug for them, by the way. <laughs> Finally, she thought, my life will be meaningful. Her plan was to tell him at the country dance on Saturday. When the day arrived, she donned her best dress, patched and worn, an obvious hand-me-down. She went to the dance with a heart full of hope. Brynhild ignored the rude calls of Snurkvistpala, the nickname locals gave her family because they were too poor to afford hardwood. She didn't let it bother her. This was her day, her moment, to change the course of a miserable future. She found her lover in the crowd, heading toward his friends. He ignored Brynhild as she approached. It was his rule that she was not to approach him in public. But she caught his eye and threatened. If he didn't go with her, 
she'd loudly blurt her piece out in public. He got the message and dipped out the side door into a small alley. His glare made Brynhild uncomfortable, and she quickly stammered out, I'm pregnant. He took one step back, openly laughed, and then shrugged, refuting the child was his. Brynhild wouldn't be denied, and she told him as much. His laughter stopped and his face twisted with rage. I won't marry you, child or not. My parents will object. They want a good match and so do I. Our time is only for arousal. This isn't love. It's animals in heat. I'll tell everyone. I'll tell your parents. I'll go to the church. You'll have to marry me. How do I even know it's mine? Who knows how many men you lift your skirts for? I have friends who will say you lay with them that you're willing to go with anyone who will take you, and even that you ask for money afterward. He was a rich, spoiled young man, and Brynhild had little doubt others would believe his story. But he would not get away with this. As her dream of escape quickly turned into a nightmarish reality, Brynhild started arguing loudly with him. She was so angry, she didn't realize his fury until he was swinging on her. The first punch caught her in the stomach and doubled her over in pain, but he didn't stop. He kept hitting her. His blows were brutal and drove her to the ground. And then he kicked her. You're a whore. He kicked her repeatedly in the stomach. Finishing with his violence, he solemnly turned away, opened the door to the dance hall just enough to let the sounds of laughter and music spill into the alleyway as Brynhild lay there bleeding. His final words, I don't want you or your bastard baby. When I have a child... He will be of good stock by a girl from a good family, no poor far f farm family like yours. Brynhild lay in agony, unable to get up, and then she felt blood flowing between her legs. Half crawling, half walking, slipping in and out of consciousness, Brynhild made her way home. She refused to lay there and die in the cold. A sudden sharp pain made her fall again. She felt the discharge of her baby leave her body. With her bare hands, she scraped away enough frozen earth to lay the tiny remains of her broken future in the ground. She vowed not to cry anymore. Crying made you weak, and she would never be weak again. Okay, can I interject there? There's a lot there. I'm not going to touch the obvious. I'm just going to say emotion is okay. I know it was like 1876, but emotions are okay. I don't want to leave that there. So Brynhild barely, barely slept that night. She lay there in pain on a thin bed of hay, wondering what her future would be like. It was nearly dawn when the bleeding and spasms stopped. Brynhild promised herself two things. She would do whatever is necessary to have money, and she would have revenge. Weeks later, Brynhild's lover became violently ill, vomiting and retching uncontrollably until he was declared dead from stomach cancer. Gossipers said his death was a poisoning, Many believe Brynhild's satisfactory smile upon receiving word of his death to be evidence this was her first murder. Brynhild often daydreamed of the supernatural stories from Norwegian folklore. Tales of evil lurking in the shadows, stories of mischievous elves and violent trolls. Her favorite story was that of Holder, a beautiful, mystical woman who lured men into her underground lair, never to be seen again. Nearly every day, from sunup to sundown, Brynhild worked the farm. The tasks for daily survival seemed unending, and she longed to escape from her poor life in Selbu, Norway. And at this time, 
tens of thousands of Norwegians emigrated to America during this era, and they wrote letters home describing the hope and opportunity. And it was an escape from destitution for many Europeans. Brynhild's older sister left Norway, settled in Chicago, Americanized her name to Nelly, and married a fellow Norwegian who kindly purchased a ticket for Brynhild. She hugged her family, left the farm, and never looked back. Sailing from Norway to America in the late 1880s, not a vacation, okay? This is not a, not a carnival cruise ship. Like, it was way worse than being stuck on a COVID cruise ship with diarrhea and nothing to eat but instant ramen. It was that's, cramped. That's why, that's why I won't take, I will never go on never a cruise. Never go on a cruise. I will never go on a cruise. Everybody shits Unless you're buying. Like, I'm not doing it. If you're buying, I might go. This isn't the first and time we've talked about this yeah, no. on this show. It was cramped. It was dangerous. The meals were included with ticket fare. Nice bonus, right? Oh, you get, you get a meal included. It's all good. But there's no refrigeration. So the food is spoiled. It's waterlogged. It's bug infested. Diseases like measles and chicken pox spread everywhere because it's close quarters. And after about the first week, the privy, that's a boat toilet. Oh, don't explain that. overflowing. Everybody should know what a privy I don't is. Look, Why would you over explain that, Jonah? That's what I, I, I do it. I'm an explainer. I'm kidding. With modern steamboat technology, the journey only took several weeks. It used to be months. So fortunately, she was on one of them steamboats because not everybody had, had that. So when Brynhild stepped foot onto the dock of New York City, the sights, smells, sounds, the cacophony of languages was overwhelming. She only spoke Norwegian at the time. She knew no other languages. There was a big language barrier. She's grubby. She has the fresh stench of overseas travel on her clothes. She managed to navigate her way through immigration, find her way to the train station, and catch her ride to Chicago. Upon arrival, Brynhild was warmly greeted by her sister Nellie and her husband. Chicago was the fastest growing city in America at this time, and one of the primary destinations for Norwegian immigrants. In fact, the area they lived in was known as Little Norway, and everyone right there spoke the home language. And Brynhild had big ambitions in America. She wanted to distance herself from the life she had in Norway. She changed her name to Bella and settled in with her sister's family. Nellie lived in a comfortable home. She had five kids. Bella's favorite niece was little Olga. And she loved to read Olga's stories and brush her fine, silky hair. But eventually, Bella, of course, she was required to get a job and contribute to the family. So she got hired as a domestic so at this time, a domestic worker was someone who essentially knows this. works within a variety of household services, gonna, cleaning, I'm gonna, I'm gonna household maintenance, house. cooking, laundry, ironing. It's a nice word for kind of a housemaid. So she worried, Brynhild, worried from time to time that someone from Selbu would mail her sister a letter telling her of the suspicions surrounding the death of her lover. Within a few months, Bella became resentful of the work and of the women she worked for. She thought they were lazy. It was shocking how many let themselves get fat or didn't put any effort into their appearance. She wondered to herself, aren't they worried that their husbands will find younger and prettier women? Husbands took notice of Bella's supple bosom and striking blue eyes. She had an alluring and promiscuous nature. Bella was enticed by their looks, and she had no objections to the extra money they'd give her. And she enjoyed the hurried, passionate sex during stolen moments when their wives were away. Passionate and, and ready, she had not just a craving for sex, 
but for the power she felt it gave her, especially over the wives. With just a few words, Bella could destroy their happiness and security, and it made her feel good to know that. Social appearances were important during this time, and Bella never missed a community dance, always with a keen eye for a potential suitor. In 1884, at the age of 25, she married a night watchman named Mads Sorensen, a fellow Norwegian known for his gentle nature. He promised to give her everything she ever wanted. Mads set her up nicely, a furnished apartment, jewelry, nice clothes, but it was never enough. She always wanted more, more money, more things, more sex. Her hunger was insatiable, and being married didn't stop Bella from continuing her affairs with other husbands. And she also wanted kids. She was excited when her niece Olga came to visit for a week, but things didn't go so well. Bella didn't have patience for the child, and she got jealous when Olga wanted to play with the other kids instead of hanging out with her aunt. It went so badly, Olga went back home in tears and left early. And Bella tried to have kids... But she was likely barren after the violent miscarriage in Selbu. Then she got an idea. Perhaps if my niece Olga could live with me, things would be great and I could make that kid happy. She figured her sister Nellie was tired all the time and complained a lot. Might as well ask if I can have one of her kids. Surely it's not unreasonable for me to have Olga, she thought. I mean, in a time at a time when you could still mail a child, I feel like I mean it yeah. is likely an okay train of thought, like, but it feels eh. very weird now. Like my I'm, sister's I'm, got five I'm, kids. I'm sick of these rascals. Here you can have one. Bitches like, about being tired. Yeah. I figure I can have her a little one. <laughs> well, the request didn't go over so well. Nellie was outraged at Bella's audacity. Bella thought her sister was a selfish bitch who didn't want her to be happy. You can have more kids, Bella told her, but. Nellie remembered all too well how terrified Olga was after coming home early from Aunt Bella's. Hold on. So give me one of your children. You can have more. It's fine. Like that, that is That's the pitch. In a nutshell. Like yep. what it is. That's the pitch. It's, it's, that's, it's weird. Something else Nellie hadn't mentioned to her sister. The letters she and her husband John received from Selbu that told the suspicious tale of her lover and his death. Now, Nellie discarded the letters as jealousy from people who wished they could be in America. Her husband, John, on the other hand, John heard the stories in town about Bella, lustful and indecent, the kind of juicy man talk you hear in the tavern after work. Bella hiked her skirts up for married men in exchange for money. And he thought Bella was a manipulator. He watched her manipulate Nellie. He believed the story from Selbu. Nellie and John's refusal to let Bella have Olga was the demise of their relationship. They never spoke again. In 1890, yeah, never spoke again. That's it. The married couple? Yeah, no, uh, Olga never spoke, Bella never spoke to her sister again after they refused to let him have one of their kids. Sorry, I didn't make that leap. It's like, we're not sisters anymore. I was like, wait a minute. Okay. Yeah. In 1890, Bella found herself at the crossroads of tragedy and opportunity. The wife of a family friend was dying, leaving behind several children, including an eight-month infant with blonde hair and blue eyes. Bella rushed to the aid of the family, cleaning the house, tending the kids. And then she begged the woman to let her care for the baby. And with all the hope a dying mother could muster, 
she put the baby in Bella's arms and made her swear an oath to raise the baby as her own. I feel like this isn't going to go well. Although the husband didn't protest the arrangement, he made it clear it was temporary. He was an engineer with several small children, and it would be a real challenge to properly care for an infant. When she had permission to take the baby, Bella couldn't wait for the mother to die. It wouldn't be prudent to leave the baby, leave with the baby while the mother was still alive. Finally, after a few hours, the woman passed away and Bella let out a sigh of relief, beaming with joy as she left the house with her new baby, Jenny. Returning to the apartment, Bella looked around and realized, I need a bigger place, a real home with a big yard, maybe some animals. But how will I get the money? She couldn't return to work now that she had a baby to care for and her husband's income wasn't enough. She wanted more money and more babies. Evidently, it wasn't actually that hard to just get new children in Chicago during this time. Child trafficking was rampant and women were birthing unwanted children daily. Well, Hoss- as, a, as an eight-year-old, you could work You could work in a factory. So, yeah. yeah. I mean, eight, eight years old. Babies everywhere. Hospitals were turning profits by selling unwanted children to parents interested in adoption. As one slogan put it, it's cheaper and easier to buy a baby for $100 than to have one of your own. That's I, good marketing. I, it's real. You didn't buy any chance. Did like, you buy one? You, you, I you didn't by any chance like find a sign or anything like that they had this, did you? No. Because that would, I think that would be, uh, that would be S- weird. So, seeing opportunity, Bella soon offered her home to care for unwanted children. Some sort of crooked daycare, best as I can tell. Plus, she made money by taking children from crowded orphanages and from parents who just casually wanted to be rid of their children. And Bella loved the children. For a while. But like a kid with new toys, she grew tired of the children and the constant care they required. Of the dozens of children who entered her care, very few were ever documented as leaving. I, I'm hoping it's just because they took really bad records, right? Is that? It's not. Is it? Okay. Lucy was 13 months old when she went to live there, a sweet and darling child, beloved by all who visited the home of Mads and Bella. Guests loved Lucy so much that one year later, questions arose when the girl just disappeared. And Bella's explanations were inconsistent, telling one friend Lucy was returned to her wealthy family telling another that Lucy had to be institutionalized. And the tone in her voice made it clear this topic was not open for discussion. But I'm gonna, I want to discuss this. It's not open. So, but it is. So my guess is, is that Lucy, because everyone loved her, Bella was crazy jealous and got rid of her. You're prob- that's a good theory. Bella is a jealous woman. So there's no documentation required for fostering or adoption. Literally none. So no one could prove Bella was lying. But that didn't stop people from whispering their suspicions of her wickedness. Hell, nobody knew Lucy's last name. Or if Lucy was even the child's real first name. Nobody could truly say who she was or where she came from or what Bella's agreement was with whoever gave her the baby. Standing on a hill of missing children, Bella could see a future of wealth. 
People were making fortunes in Chicago's expanding industry. When the Sorensons acquired a little money from a house fire insurance payout, Bella convinced Matt's to buy a confectionery store. Things started moving rapidly after the purchase. Should I explain what a confectionery store is, or is that not relevant? It's it's really just like a fancy way to say convenience store. Oh, yeah, it's like like the neighborhood little convenience store. They carried like like toothbrushes and I don't know things that people needed in 1895. Whatever this is, they didn't brush their teeth in 1895. I would have said like one guy did a candy. Yeah, candy store. No, candies too, sweets, meats. Yeah, see tools. I'm saying it's like a con- I, like convenience the, store. I like the explanations. Yeah, I like I'm, the explanations a lot, yeah. Don Palumbo. The store was a total failure as a business, but a massive success at burning to the ground and producing a fat insurance payout. Bella and Matt's used that money to move to the suburb of Austin, Illinois. And it was a series of big level ups for Bella. Now she was a person of elevated status and she wanted more. This is when she realized it wouldn't take marriage or grueling hard work to get there. Later that year, one of the children in her home, three-month-old Carolyn, suddenly died. Bella collected on the insurance. The cause of death was listed as acute colitis. Coincidentally, acute colitis shares all the same symptoms as poisoning. Neighbors took notice of people coming and going from the Sorensen home at all hours of the night, followed by new foster children the next morning. In 1898, another house fire and another infant death. Five-month-old Axel followed baby Carolyn to the grave. He, too, died from acute colitis and had an insurance that was paid out. Bella was outwardly brokenhearted, shattered, Tragedy follows me everywhere, Mats. How can one woman take so much? What will the children and I do if something happens to you? Mats should run. Like, he should should run. Like, immediately. He doesn't, though, does he? Oh, Mats is a good man. He's a standby, a standby-my-woman kind of man. And he could hardly console her. Then, Mats had a realization. Bella was a selfish woman who cared nothing for his sorrow. He loved those children, held them, comforted them when she would not. In his heart, somehow, he knew when they got sick, they were going to die, no matter what the doctors did. He buried the children, and she never stopped to ask how any of it affected him. It was almost as if she only cared for herself. Max was also having reservations about their new renter, Peter Gunnis a young and handsome Norwegian who recently emigrated from Norway. Although Mats enjoyed conversation at the dinner table with Peter Gunnis, he felt something more was happening. Bella made all his favorite Norwegian dishes and acted differently in his presence. And Bella was obsessively concerned with her husband's health. When Mats joined the North American Union, he took out a much larger insurance policy. By the end of the century... Matt's finally started to understand the truth about his wife. She didn't love him. Likely she never had. She was greedy, maybe even bloodthirsty. He started to wonder about the missing children. Now, they lived in a pretty friendly neighborhood with lots of kids. 
But Bella never let her kids go anywhere. There were always new kids at the Sorensen home, always pretty little children confined to the yard. And Bella was mean to the other girls when they came by to ask if Jenny could play, which she was really never allowed to do. So it was a welcome surprise when Bella gave Jenny permission to go pick apples with her neighborhood friends. Max gave the girls money for ice cream. When they left, Matt ate a lunch prepared by his wife. Soon after, his head was throbbing. I knew it. Bella rushed to nurse him, insisting he drink water with a medicinal powder. Matt didn't say no to his wife, ever. He drank the water, walked to his room, and lay atop the bed fully clothed. Mads never woke up. A neighbor claimed hearing Matt scream, Bella, you've poisoned me. There was some controversy. Dr. J.B. Miller was first to arrive. When he saw the arced, unnaturally positioned, lifeless body of Matt's, Matt's hand was gripping the bed frame. The doctor immediately recognized the symptoms as strychnine poisoning. Hoping to confirm the cause of death, Dr. Miller told Bella, he's doing, I'm, I'm doing an autopsy. And she went into hysterics, loud, bellowing cries, freaking out, wailing at the top of her lungs, demanding their family physician, Dr. Charles Jones. When Dr. Jones arrived, he did everything he could to console the grieving woman and her obnoxious wails. And Jones told Miller he had been treating Mads for an enlarged heart, and he was certain heart failure was the cause of death. Miller didn't want to challenge the older doctor, and he reluctantly signed the death certificate. Okay, as, as somebody who's in the insurance industry during the day, this is why the insurance industry has so many regulations, is because of people like her. Like She was so, good at it. I'm sorry to go so nerdy there, but it's true. Like this She's is good at fraud. It's it's fraud. And murder. But Well, yeah, we don't know. I mean we don't know. She was trying to doctor him up, it sounds like Yes, she seemed very loving and, and caring. Yes. Yeah, she was obsessively concerned with his health. It said that, yes. right? You know, it, it said that. She's a caring lady. I almost believe it. When young Jenny returned with sweets, she sensed something was wrong. Neighbors were gathered outside her house. And when she went inside, Bella was sitting at the kitchen table counting numbers. Your papa's dead, Bella said. It was really matter of fact. You'll need to start, you'll, you'll need to start doing more around the house and taking care of the little ones. I'll have other things to do, to do to keep this household going. Matt's just so happened to die on the very day, the only day his insurance policies overlapped when the new one kicked in. Bella stood to take in $8,500. That's a quarter of a million bucks by today's standards. There was just one problem. Oscar, the brother of Matt's. He knew Bella murdered his brother, and he meant to prove it. Neighbors gave written testimony that Matt's was healthy and only died after Bella gave him the powder water. Matt's body was exhumed and autopsied. Doctors confirmed the enlarged heart as the cause of death. They agreed to test for poison, but Oscar couldn't afford the large fee, and Matt's was returned to the grave. Yeah. He couldn't afford the fee, nope. so they, they, did, they didn't do it. Nope. Like, Sorry, bud, you can't pay. Even because there's suspicion? Like, no. Nope. It was an enlarged heart. You know, people really liked Bella. She hung out, and they liked her. She was like, they're like, nope. 
what a time to be alive crazy. and murder people. Yeah. Like, this is... Like, this one's... It's an enlarged heart. We've been treating him for it. You're... you're you know, you're... She's all right. I mean, we'll test for the poison. We'll yeah. test for it. If but you, got you the have money. to pay for it. Yeah. Oscar told anyone who would listen to the, the story of his brother's murder. He was poisoned by Bella, and rumors swirled, and people watched fire after fire, baby farming, and the mysterious circumstances result in Bella's upward movement through society. It was the whisper of the community, and when the rumors made their way back to Bella, she knew it was time to move on. From abject poverty to prosperity in one of America's most exciting cities, Bella was going places. One way or another, she purchased a 43-acre farm just outside of LaPorte, Indiana. LaPorte was a beautiful lakeside town with a bustling population of 10,000 people connected to Chicago by train. The property Bella purchased had a dark history. It was originally built by the founding fathers of Laporte, who were Confederate sympathizers that got chased off after the war. Then it was owned by two brothers who died mysteriously at the same time, a grief-stricken woman who poisoned herself over a love affair, and a man who hanged himself from a bedpost. In the 1890s, the property was owned by Madame Maddie Altick. The infamous Madame ran a brothel and was involved in nearly every illegal activity you can imagine. Prostitution, extortion, gambling, drugs, and human trafficking. She threw huge wild parties and orgies. There were knifings and murders, debauchery of the highest order. The residence was a cesspool of indulgence. This is the property that Bella purchased. I'm guessing. And, I'm guessing she felt right there, like she felt at home there, right like at home. Just, like this is a good one. I'm I'm going this. Like That's I can feel it. One. I can feel it in my gut. Like I'm going with this one. In November of 1901, the property was paid for in cash by a tall Norwegian woman with a thick accent. Thirteen thousand dollars in a cloth satchel. So this is like a four hundred thousand dollar home. She immediately insured two buildings that she had no use for. And you can guess what happened to those buildings. Lightning. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was Something a, like that. No, yeah, no, it was uh, a wolf attack happened to the buildings. Absolutely. Makes complete no, it was, sense. It actually was fire. It yeah. was fire. Yeah, two of them. Yep. They, uh, they burned. She got paid. And it was a new start and time for a new name. Bella changed her name to Belle. She moved onto the property with three children, Jenny, Myrtle, and Lucy. New Wait, did, did she change the kids' names to like... She got a new Lucy. Know, to, like, to like Jan and, nope. you know, like Linda. I mean, like, changed her name from Bella to Belle. Like, Bella to Belle. It's a big leap. It's like, whoa, big brain. So, new name, new city, new house. You know what else Belle needed? Therapy. If you said a new husband... You were right. So matrimonial advertisements were a common practice of the era. Don, have you ever done one, Don, a matrimonial advertisement? No? Me neither. So it was like, just, like it's, it's like the nineteen hundreds version of Tinder like or a match. I, just, I couldn't I couldn't be there. Like I just couldn't get there. It was I knew it was there, but sorry. Yeah, it's it's matrimonial advertisements. So running a matrimonial agency at this time was actually a really lucrative business. If you were somebody you just you wanted you were looking at somebody to hook up with. 
you know, you put an ad in these papers and these matrimonial agencies would make the matches for you again. She, she, it was an app, you know? Well, like, I mean, Tinder is not that cutting edge then if you look at that. I mean, a matrimonial, no. I mean. No. Mat- they've been not, doing it for a long t- time. Not that Tinder is like for matrimonial things, but like, I mean, it, it's. And Belle it's was a rich lady news. now. She's a rich lady. She's like hot goods, you know? So she, was, she was that a fire joke? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even know I did that. Actually, that's that's, that's good. Well done. So I'm, Bell advertised. Very proud. <laughs> yeah, Bell advertised in a ton of Scandinavian newspapers, and she had no shortage of suitors. First up, Peter Fredrickson. His home was free of liens and valued at fifteen hundred bucks. Peter also had a thousand dollars in life insurance. Bell wasn't very impressed, but it was satisfactory. She asked Fredrickson to sell his house and move in with her and to not tell anyone. And Frederick, when Fredrickson agreed, his housekeeper knew all his secrets, told him, hey, that woman, do not marry her. Peter ignored her advice and he arranged a wedding supper. But when his friends refused to attend, he got the message. Peter Fredrickson ended the engagement then and there. Belle was livid, and she blamed the nosy housekeeper, Mrs. Gunnis, for ruining the intended marriage. Belle started planning her revenge immediately. Mrs. Gunnis had a son, Peter Gunnis. Remember Peter? He lived with her in Mads. The young, attractive Norwegian fellow. Peter was a handsome man, a tall, strong, of Norwegian blood, looked like a Viking. It was mid-1901 now. Peter himself was a widow with a young daughter and a baby, Jenny. Belle wasted no time. She and Peter were married on April 1st, 1902. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Something tells me that you can't have two Jennies in the home. And this is not going to go well for her. Nah, it's probably not a problem. A few days after their marriage, a physician was called to the home. Belle told him the infant was deathly ill, but he couldn't find any symptoms of sickness. Two days later... He was called back again, and this time, baby Jenny was dead. Yeah. Although the physician believed the baby was smothered to death, there was no proof, and the cause of death was listed as edema of the lungs. Edema. Edema. It's edema. Thanks, buddy. You're welcome. Sorry. Around- I don't mean to be that. Yeah. I don't mean to be that guy. I, no, you, you did it. I am that guy. Sorry. You're not. I'm not actually. Yeah. No, I'm not. No. You can Jonah that out if you want to. Around 3 a.m. on Tuesday, December 16th, the Nicholsons, neighbors to Bell and Peter, were awakened by a knock on their door. It was Bell's oldest daughter, Jenny. Mama wants you to come up. Papa's burned himself. When the Nicholsons arrived a few minutes later, they found Peter Gunnis lying motionless on the kitchen floor next to a hysterical Bell Gunnis. When the doctor showed up to examine the body... He noticed the back of Peter's head was bloody, his nose broken and bent to one side. Rigor mortis was already setting in, a sign he had been dead longer than Bell claimed. The doctor was also a coroner. He believed Peter was murdered. When Bell was questioned, she was distraught, moaning, and hysterical. She told them a meat grinder fell on Peter's head and, in the commotion, A hot cauldron of brine spilled onto his neck. Bell tried to doctor his burns with Vaseline and baking soda, then laid her husband down to rest in the parlor. As she told the story, none of them believed a word of it, but they didn't want to cross Bell Gunnis. 
Well, I mean, what do you think? Uh, the meat grinder, pretty reasonable. Killed by a falling meat grinder. Seems logical. Yeah. And, and then, like, I mean, it, oh, my it, gosh, the like, meat grinder fell. And then, oh, gosh, a hot cauldron of brine. I mean, come on, please. Like, that's what, a, what, she's not that scary. Like, like Super logical. Ugh. Super logical death sequence. When the autopsy showed deep lacerations on the back of Peter's head, an inquest was called for and held just two days later. When Belle took the stand, she moaned and wailed and she put on a vigorous display of tragic sadness. Then the the Nicholsons took the stand and said they did not believe Peter was murdered. Belle was found not guilty, although years later, her youngest son Myrtle told a classmate, My mama killed my papa. She hit him with a meat cleaver and he died. Don't tell a soul. Please tell me Myrtle is okay. Like, no. Peter's Peter's death was ruled an accident, and Belle got away with yet another murder. Following the accusations of murder, she consulted a lawyer and filed for a death certificate. Peter was buried three days later with no one but a few neighbors and Belle's family in attendance. Peter's family was not at the funeral. And if that seems strange, well... It's because Bell Gunnis didn't tell them Peter died. Didn't tell a single soul of his family. They, they found out in the newspapers. It took nearly three weeks before anyone from Peter's family knew he was dead. When Gustav, his brother in Wisconsin, got word of the news, he set off for Bell's farm. Gustav didn't have, he, he didn't have to spend much time on the farm with Bell to conclude that she murdered his brother. He met with Sheriff Albert Smutzer to demand an investigation, but the sheriff refused to open the investigation back up. Nobody around town was surprised. After all, the sheriff's fancy red roadster car was often parked outside Bell's house. Okay, what, what year are we in? Like 1903? 1901, 02 here? What a time to be alive. Oh, yeah. I say that a lot, but wow, you can do lots of things. Insurance fraud, lots of murders. Baby farming. Yeah. Like it, that's. Lots of, you know, murdering your husbands. It seems, seems. Gustav insisted Bell turn over Peter's estate to his only surviving child, Swanhild. And she, and Bell told him, well, unfortunately, Peter cashed out his policy to buy stocks in a mine. But if it pans out, Swanhild will be rich. Naturally, there was no documentation for any of it. Gustav was certain the woman murdered his brother and his niece, and he knew if Swanhild stayed in the home, she'd be dead too. So he requested to take the child back to his family in Wisconsin. Belle had a different idea. Well, why don't you come live with me and help manage the oh, farm? Sweet Jesus, are you, are you kidding? Like, well, it seems like this is this entire, she's a widow this, who this, needs this help. Story is making me uncomfortable. She's like, a widow is, who needs help. This guy can help. It's reasonable. He does not see the light of day. There's well, no way. listen, Don. He agreed to stay the night. And in the twilight hours, executed a daring plan to escape with his niece. Belle was furious. The girl had seen too much. What if she realizes what she saw and starts talking? She couldn't allow it, but it was too late. And she couldn't just go hunt them down with a shotgun. Why not? The- well, she... She maybe could have poisons been, uh, them all. Like, what does it matter? Poisoning point? is a lot easier I mean, not that than I want shotgunning. That to happen, but Let's be real here. Well, she's daring enough, and you know, 
She's been sticking it to the sheriff, so who cares? Uh, that's a big leap already. Good for you. Big leap. Well, the red his, roadster. It's, well, it's, it's well, implied. His, it's his, implied. Yeah. Yeah. His his so Gustav was car. Yeah. Gustav was scared shitless of Bell, and he did not feel safe until the very moment he and Swanhild finally stepped off the train in Wisconsin. We're safe, he thought. We outwitted her. Little did he realize the danger was not over. Not long after returning to Wisconsin, the family noticed a strange man hanging around. They believed he was a spy sent to kill or kidnap Swanhild. Gustav's family sent her to live with a wealthy family friend where she could be kept safe. Years later, and Swanhild made it. Years later, her son said, My mother spent her entire life living in fear until the day she died. There were so many oddities observed at the Gunnis farm over the years. A handyman built a pig pen six feet high with barbed wire on top. He thought it was a strange build for a pig pen. How high do you think pigs jump, lady? A peddler once pulled up to Bell's house, went inside to show off his wares. He was never seen again. A couple days later, Bell was casually driving his buggy around town. She felt more powerful and untouchable with each passing day. Although the man she sent to kidnap Swanhild returned empty-handed, she didn't care because the sheriff wasn't going to investigate her. Belle knew how to put an end to those investigations right there in the sheriff's office. She could outsmart anyone. And now that the mess with Peter was behind her, it was time for Belle to advertise again. So this, I, want to, I wanted to read her, this is her actual matrimonial advertisement. No. Now that Peter was dead, she had to get out. She had to get herself out there, Don. Gustav turned her down and stole her kid. Personal, comely widow who owns a large farm in one of the finest districts in LaPorte County, Indiana, desires to make the acquaintance of gentlemen equally well provided with view of joining fortunes. No replies by letter considered unless sender is willing to follow answer with personal visit. Triflers need not apply. Don't be trifling around here. Okay. Belle's appetite for expansion, her appetite for more, was never satisfied. And people really respected her work ethic. She took on all forms of farm work. Haying, livestock, milking, plowing, planting, harvesting. Neighbors saw her do all these things. And a lot of them thought it was really strange to see her doing chores so soon after giving birth. In fact, nobody could quite remember Belle ever announcing a pregnancy, but shortly after Peter's death, she had a baby. And nearly all of them agreed. Little Philip Gunnis looks a lot older than a newborn. One neighbor alleged seeing a woman carrying a baby arrive in the middle of the night and never leave the home. Peter's family also found it strange that Bell never registered Philip's birth with the county or the state. Suspicions swirled around Bell. Neighbors just couldn't figure her out. She was a loving mother who worked really hard on her farm. Her mm, kids were polite. Was she? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Man, she worked hard on that farm. She did all the farm work. A loving mother? I mean... Yeah. Her kids were polite and they were happy. They were well-dressed and attended church. So they must be loved, right? Totally. That's what that meant. Oh, yes. Belle Silly. even visited neighbor children and brought them treats and sweets when they were sick. Just the sweetest lady. 
Farm work was obviously rigorous, and it would take more than Belle and her children to keep it going, so she put out an ad for hired help. Olaf Lindbo answered the call. He emigrated to the region from Norway just three years prior. He was a kind, handsome 30-year-old man who quickly got along with Belle, her neighbors, and the children. When Belle started slipping into his bedroom in the middle of the night, Olaf thought he'd become more than hired help. He was so confident in their relationship, he sent letters to his family telling them he's getting married. Oh, don't do it. One night, one night when playing with the children after supper, one of them told Olaf, I love you. He smiled and he told the children, I love all of you. His sudden disappearance days later raised a lot of eyebrows. Okay, this is just, this is... This is ridiculous. Like, this is... Well, he told the kids... The kids said they loved him, Don. You just can't do that on this farm. Okay? There can only be love for Belle. So his sudden disappearance... A lot of eyebrows. Well, neighbors like Chris Christofferson inquired into Olaf's whereabouts... Not of... Not no. of the songwriter... No. no. Real, okay. real, real... Guy's real name, though. Okay. So whenever they asked about his whereabouts, it was a different story. He left in the middle of the night for St. Louis... Olaf wanted to see the World's Fair and buy land. He returned to Norway to see the crowning of the new king. She told Olaf's father that he went out west to start a homestead. She wasn't sure where. A few months later, Belle hired Henry Gerholt. Henry quickly turned neighbors into friends with his polite disposition. He wrote in a letter to his mother that Belle was kind and made him feel like part of the family. He also commented on her beauty and the amazing property. He, too disappeared abruptly <laughs> just i'm getting can, annoyed now. oh you like, can <laughs> you can imagine chris christopherson's surprise when bell asked him for help during harvest where'd henry go he asked he fell ill and suddenly left for chicago bell told him and he was in such a rush you wouldn't believe this he was in such a rush he actually left all of his shit here except for a satchel of clothes of course of course he did. like he left everything Chris's suspicions deepened when he saw Belle wearing Henry's fur coat later that winter. Now, Gunnis hired many farmhands over the years, and she often asked them to do odd jobs like dig pits on the property for trash and rubbish. She also refused explicitly to slaughter animals. She, was, she always had the men do that bloody work. All these men disappeared without saying a word, and Belle openly complained to neighbors how difficult it was to keep good help. <laughs> Just. In her mind, hired hands were not a viable long-term investment. They were good for only two things, sex and farm work. Correction, three, murdering. Murdering, yeah. Hey, come on. Yeah, maybe, I don't know. There's no evidence. <laughs> she took out more ads, oftentimes under fake names. And Belle had a really dark and twisted sense of humor. She used the names of Peter Gunnis's first wife and deceased daughter. I'm sorry, that is not humor. That's not a dark sense of humor. I have. She thought it was funny. That that is like psychopath material. Like that's what that is. Belle but it was, was. But it was 1903. It's yeah. Fine. It's fine. Oh, you ain't seen nothing yet. Oh, God. Okay. Belle was constantly sending and receiving letters. It's likely she had an agent working for her who collected letters from multiple post offices. It's also believed Belle operated matrimonial agencies in Warsaw, Indiana, throughout Indiana, Syracuse, and other cities. The alleged agent was a young man named Julius G. Truelson. 
He had very little money, but a high willingness to help Bell on her endeavors. The reason Bell used so many names in post offices was to prevent others from discovering what she was really doing. Bell received four to ten letters a day, all of which she replied to, all of which were often from different men. Her operation was impressive. It was organized. She had to ensure suitors didn't show up to her farm at the same time, keep all her stories straight, remember which name she used with which suitor, plus she had to plan their murder and hide their body, but not before getting all their money. Oh, Muffin, I'm so sorry about her life. Oh, so hard. To say she was organized is a vast understatement. Belle was very direct that she was only interested in men with money because she was a woman of stature who had her own money. Her strategy was precise and it worked with startling ease. Lure men with the ad, charm them with love letters that highlighted her cooking skills and hinted at conjugal bliss, convince them to keep the relationship a secret, and finally insist they cash out their assets and move to Laporte to prove their worth. Well, uh, and don't tell anyone when you come here, she told me. I mean, that is, that is, it has to be what all the men want. Has to be. Like, just keep it a secret. We'll do it all the time. I'll murder you. It's going to be great. It's going to be great. Make sure you give me your and, money And first. then bring your money. Yeah. yeah. Because Bell, that seems normal. Bell lured an old man from Wisconsin, Ole Budsberg. He was a kind widower seeking a quiet life with a lovely woman. He traveled to Laporte to meet Belle in person, and after spending a few days with her, Ole returned home, sold his assets, and said goodbye to his sons for the last time. In Laporte, he cashed in on the land he owned at the bank, and it was the last time anyone saw him alive. His sons sent letters that were returned as undeliverable. Belle told the bank Ole left her and went to Oregon. He just gave me all his money and left. Weirdest thing. His sons tried contacting the sheriff, but they were assured by Sheriff Smutzer nothing was amiss at the widow's house. Or in the widow's vagina, because that's what was happening. <laughs> like, come on. Oh, my gosh. Like, this is You're going to love like, Belle's other business. <laughs> oh. We haven't even gotten this. She got other businesses you don't even know about yet, well, Don. She, seem, she seems like a well-rounded individual. She's industrious, okay? She's a businesswoman. Belle's other business, a covert abortion agency. Why wouldn't, why wouldn't it be? In this era, birth control was pretty much non-existent and in most places also illegal. Women with out-of-wedlock children were pariahs and most could hardly afford to care for children on their own. Adoption and social service agencies were vastly overwhelmed. Pregnant, unmarried women were often banished from their own homes and society altogether. Belle saw this as an opportunity and she monetized it. Although abortions during this time often resulted in death, it sadly did not stop women from seeking them. And Belle got paid for her services whether they lived or died. When she lost a patient, no big deal. There's plenty of space to bury them on the farm for an extra charge. Who does she charge? Whoever sent that woman there. Oh, okay. That makes sense. So, Bell most likely had a partnership with violent Chicago gangs who needed a body farm and a place for their prostitutes to get abortions. 
So Chicago at this time, so if they had a, a prostitute that needed an abortion, they'd send her there. And if she died during the abortion, it they just killed right. her and buried her. And Bell got extra, extra money from them. Mm-hmm. Right. Chicago was a hotbed for murder. Gang violence was constant. There were also at least two serial killers operating in Chicago during this time in addition to Bell. That's some serious competition. Uh, yes. The, the other two serial killers, H.H. Holmes and Johan Hoke, each of those is thought to have killed at least 30 women. Many people believe Johan Hoke and Bell had a professional working relationship as murderers. She dismembered his bodies and buried them with quicklime for a fee. So since Johan killed all of his women based out of a city, Nobody ever found most of the bodies, and they connected the pieces through a number of ways that Johan Hoke likely knew Bell and was hiding, she was hiding his bodies. More on that later. This is a lot. Okay. Carriages arrived at all times of the night to the, the Bell farm. Sometimes people would get out and enter the farm, never to be seen again. Other times, large, heavy, and odorous trunks were unloaded in the dark of night. Oh, hang on. I'm guessing there's dead people in the bodies or in the in the in the trunks. Nobody knows. That'd be my guess. No. Okay. Bell Silly once me. reported she thought a couple killed their baby and buried it on her farm. She showed police the hole, but they didn't find anything. She told a lot of similar stories like this that were designed to throw people off. As Bell's adopted daughter Jenny got older, she started to become far more aware of Bell's activities. At age 16, Jenny was pretty and of an age to be married. She was growing in her independence and spending what little free time she had with either John or Emil, two young men who wanted Jenny's hand in marriage. Sensing her control slipping and her trust was wavering, Bell suddenly announced to one and all that she registered Jenny for college in Los Angeles. She was to leave by horse and carriage with a professor and his wife in just a few short weeks. It was sudden, and Jenny was reluctant to go. But Belle was domineering, and eventually the young girl gave in. People wondered aloud why Belle was sending Jenny by carriage and not by train. Surely the latter was safer and more efficient. Belle would have none of it. And on a snowy Christmas Eve that same year, Jenny left in the evening with the professor and two others who arrived with him just that day. Julius Julius Truelson was also witnessed around Laporte that day, a longtime errand boy for Belle. No one ever heard from Jenny again. Professor. Like around, like professor, not really a professor. And who sends their kid away to college on Christmas Eve? I mean, it's Christmas Eve. No, I mean, seems, and in a, a carriage. This is you're in the Midwest, and you could take a train to California. It's safe. It's easy. There's no wolves or bandits or murder or risk of the weather. But she's like, no, we're gonna send him by carriage out there to L.A. with a professor. It's fine. Yep. Bell's attention then turned to 37 year old Ray Lam Fear, and so she's got to be about the same age at this point, I would think. What's that? Um, about 37, 30 ish, maybe. She was 17 and 76, so I, I don't know. Uh, I'm not don't, gonna, come it's on. Not it's, Midwest not we're not Midwest math. math I'm not bro. doing that. Never mind. We're not mathing up in here. <laughs> Bell's attention turned to 37-year-old Ray Lamphere. Ray was widely known as a drunk who spent too much time in saloons. She gave him a room and employed him as a farmhand. In a short matter of time, Ray became much more than just a farmhand. When Bell Gunnis slipped into his room on the first night, 
There were no objections from Le- from Raylam Fear, and he was quickly bewitched. A convenient lover, Ray was willing to do anything Bell asked of him. Night after night, Bell made Ray feel special. When she had to distance herself for business matters, she left him little gifts and trinkets. The attention and gifts placated Ray for a while, but his jealousy grew with each day. When Bell's suitors came to the farm, they required all of her attention, and Ray was often sent to his room. He knew it was business, that she was taking their money and possessions, including many of the very gifts she gave him. Ray had no remorse when disposing of their bodies. None of them loved Bell like he did. Bell's preferred method of dispatching her suitors was to poison their coffee with chloral hydrate or strychnine, and as they died, she bludgeoned them over the head. Other times, she snuck into their room while they slept and pounded them to death with a club. Bell was also an expert with a knife and took great joy in personally butchering the bodies of the men she killed. It's probably why she didn't butcher the animals, to hide her skills with a knife, and because she was butchering so many human bodies. She was so busy with the humans that she couldn't butcher the animals. Yeah. yeah. I just wanted to check. Okay. I Yes. I think it was mostly to hide that she had those skills too, though. Like sure. that, like if you're butchering that many humans, you don't want people to see your skill with a knife when you're, you know, doing up a pig or a cow. So or she her, hid that. Like that was a legit that, thing. Or the fact she that she did was all a, the farm work pointedly except the butchering. But or or the fact that she's a farmer, if yep. you will, or a rancher, and wouldn't she get some practice by taking care of those animals? But you know, whatever, it's. Ray boasted of his sex life with Belle to anyone in the saloon willing to listen. He even claimed they were getting married. After a time, Ray told Belle he wanted a cut of the money she was stealing. She knew he was starting to outlive his usefulness. He was obsessed with her, drank way too often, and knew way too much. Ray believed his main rival for Belle's attention was Sheriff Albert Smutzer, whose red roadster was often seen parked outside of her, her home. There were men so enchanted by Belle's lusty pornographic letters, they didn't even bother building a relationship and traveled directly to Belle's farm with all their money and property just to hand it over and get killed. Others, like Andrew Helgeline, required a little more convincing. Bell corresponded with Andrew, a wealthy farmer from Aberdeen, South Dakota, every week for over a year. Just stop and think for a moment. The dedication Bell put into luring this man onto her farm. He was different from any man Bell enticed. Andrew was cautious. He was street smart. He had spent 10 years in prison for robbery and burning down a building. He had two siblings who he was very close to, Ossel and Anna. Belle did everything she could to hook Andrew, promising to make him the finest Norwegian meals, appealing to his vanity, painting herself as a genuine Norwegian woman. None of it worked as quickly or efficiently as Belle expected it to. This was a man playing hard to get, and it drove her crazy. On several occasions, Andrew told Bell he was coming to Laporte and then delayed departure at the last moment. It cost Bell more attention and emotion than she was in- accustomed to investing in her marks. Her letters to him became anxious, maybe even a little whiny, yet she persisted, 
always encouraging him to sell everything, rush to her side with his money, and tell no one of his move. Like, how is that not suspicious? I just can't get over that. Like, hey, sell all your shit and move here. Don't tell anyone. So if we can offer some advice, I feel like if somebody's telling you to do that, maybe you shouldn't. Yeah, well, I mean, just, yeah, I think people get that now. Well, I mean, 120 maybe. years ago. When Belle finally issued an ultimatum, it worked. And she met Andrew at the Laporte train depot on January 3rd, 1908. Andrew didn't plan to stay long. He was there to scope out the situation. He left neighbors in charge of his livestock. He hadn't sold his farm or brought a big wad of money sewn into the lining of his coat as Bell had consistently asked him to do. Bell gave Andrew Ray's bedroom and told Ray to sleep in the barn. The two spent the weekend as though they were longtime lovers. On Monday, Andrew knew he wanted to be with Bell Gunnis for the rest of his life. They went directly to the National Bank in Laporte so Andrew could transfer all his money from Aberdeen. And Belle was pissed when she found out that transaction was going to take a couple of days. Meanwhile, Ray's mood was darkening and he was becoming paranoid. Even going so far as to tell one friend, Belle and Andrew were planning to kill him. Although he knew sleeping with her suitors was part of Belle's operation, he was especially jealous of Andrew. Ray was drinking more than ever and losing his mind right along with Belle's favor. A few days later, the money transfer was complete. The bank teller advised Andrew to open a savings account and deposit the money, but Belle insisted the money be taken all in cash. She had worked nearly two years on this mark, and now she was only getting a portion of his wealth. It was time to cut her losses. A heinous plan was set in place for that very same day. She sent Ray on an errand out of town to pick up a horse from her cousin 12 miles away in Michigan City, and she was clear in her instructions that he was to wait for her cousin, even if it meant staying the night. Ray didn't like leaving Belle on the farm with Andrew, but he agreed to acquire the horse and convinced his buddy John Rye to join him. They killed time in Michigan City, hung out at the saloon, went to a vaudeville show. But eventually Ray grew impatient and he believed Bell sent him on a fool's errand. They caught an interurban car back to Laporte and Ray went straight to the farm. When he arrived, Ray was ready for a fight. But when Bell answered the door, she invited him in with a slight smile. Julius Trulison, Bell's old friend, was in the parlor playing cards with Andrew. Expecting Ray to be gone, Bell hired Julius for the night's work. Ray settled in and joined them. It didn't take long for him to understand what was happening. Andrew was a dead man. Bell excused herself to make another round of drinks and deftly slipped poison into Andrew's beer. Andrew felt the poison after just a few swigs and begged Bell to call a doctor. When she refused, he began struggling and the men subdued him while Bell hit him over the head, knocking him unconscious. Ray and Julius carried him to the butchery room in the back, but Bell insisted on slaughtering Andrew herself. All three were so caught up in the moment, they didn't hear the knock of Addie Landis at the front door. When no one answered, Addie walked around toward the light in the back of the house. When Addie entered through the back door, 
She couldn't contain the blood-curdling scream that erupted from her body when she saw Belle sawing off Andrew's head while Ray stood next to her holding open a sack. Julius and Ray were stunned in place by the sudden interruption, but Belle was quick to react and rushed in front of Addie, blocking her exit to the back door. Addie ran through the house. The front door's bolts were in place, but Belle hadn't turned the locks enough to catch their holders when she opened the door for Ray earlier. Addie yanked the locks open just as Belle grabbed her with a huge strong hand. Addie squirmed. Belle's hands were too slippery from the blood to keep a grip. Addie swung the door open and ran onto the porch. Belle caught her again and the women stumbled out the front door. Just then, Belle caught sight of Addie's driver, Ebb. The distraction was just enough for Addie to shove the older woman hard and break free, running toward the carriage. Belle calculated killing them both, but she knew Ebb carried a gun in case of troublesome passengers. Belle's eyes locked with Ebb's for a moment. They knew one another, but no one said a word. And Belle went, Belle went back inside, slamming the door. Ebb watched as every light in the house went out, one by one, until it was all black. Addie was hysterical. The traumatic event was overwhelming for the young woman, and Ebb could hardly understand a word she said in her frenzied story. And she was somewhat calmer when they arrived back at the depot. She boarded a train back to Chicago. When she tried relaying the story again back in Chicago, they put her in a mental hospital. Oh, you've got to be kidding me. Like, come on. <laughs> I mean, what? I mean, it's, it's pretty crazy, you know? Like... Send this woman to the long cliff, it was called. Meanwhile, Belle knew the police could be there at any moment. She methodically cut off Andrew's remaining body parts, an expert in her butcherous work. Then, Belle decided on a plan. She would deny the girl's story and say she caught her trying to steal. Belle wrapped the body parts and gave them to Julius and Ray to bury. Julius was eager to get the hell out of there. Belle paid him well, and he was gone. With Andrew dead... And Julius gone, Belle expected Ray to fall back into place, to be the, the lovesick puppy who took her orders with little to no complaint. Instead, Ray demanded more money for his bloody tasks and his silence. Belle paid him 50 bucks, but he thought he was worth thousands. He was a drunk, but he wasn't stupid. He knew how much money Belle was raking in. The final straw was when Belle complained to Ray that Sheriff Albert Smutzer was too expensive, commenting she gave him $1,000 and bought him a fancy car to keep quiet. Already, Ray was angry knowing she slept with the man, but now he was furious. Albert got to spend time in Belle's bed and rake in thousands of dollars plus a fancy car while Ray did the bloody work and often slept in the barn and got paid 50 bucks. Ray started drinking even more, not behaving, and finally, Bell fired him on February 3rd, 1908, just a few weeks after Andrew's murder. Ray was raging afterward and stormed off the farm without taking any of his stuff. Ray consulted with an attorney, Wirt Worden. Worden was a popular, well-liked attorney who advised Ray he had a legal right to retrieve his property. Bell ran him off the farm and reported him to Sheriff Smutzer for harassment, but she couldn't get Ray arrested until he actually got caught on her farm. When Bell hired a new farmhand, Joe Maxson, it was a clear message her partnership, if you could call it that, with Ray was over. 
She learned her lesson with Ray and didn't sleep with Joe or include him in the real business. Joe was content to work, bank his money, and play fiddle in the evening. Still, Ray kept coming around, and Belle deployed new tactics. She filed an affidavit declaring Ray insane, citing a laundry list of reasons. And Ray was tested by a trio of doctors who determined he was a nervous and drunk person, but a perfectly sane man. When that didn't work, Bell offered Ray another 50 bucks to leave. He countered and claimed she owed him $1,000 for his assistance. Bell was stubborn, and she should have just paid him and chalked it up as a business expense. But she just couldn't bring herself to do it in spite of everything Ray had done for her. Then Bell, with one of her children as a fellow witness, swore under oath they caught Ray in the hog pen. He cut a wire, pulled out a fence post, and let some hogs loose on the farm. Attorney Wirt Worden, once again, helped prove Ray's innocence with an alibi. Bell Gunnis ominously warned the court, If anything happens to me or my children, there will be blood on your hands. Short of having Ray killed, Bell was running out of options. She had Ray arrested again for trespassing. Ray again retained the services of Wirt Worden. Wirt filed for a change of venue. At the trial, Wirt's line of questioning took a direction Bell never saw coming. Bell took the stand as a witness, as per usual. But this time, Wirt Worden went for the jugular. He asked Bell about the death of her first husband and the big insurance payout. The prosecutor objected immediately, but Wirt pressed on. What about the death of your second husband and another insurance check? Then, Wirt approached Bell on the stand, looked her in the eyes and asked, When is Jenny Olson coming home? Ray was found guilty, but Bell was shook. How much does Wirt Worden know, she wondered. Ray's new employer, farmer John Wheatbrook, paid the fine and Ray was free to go. Within weeks, Bell had Ray arrested again for trespassing. This time, Wirt presented several witnesses who directly countered Bell's accusations and told the court Ray was at the Wheatbrook farm, nowhere near Bell's home. This time, Ray won. Bell had never been beaten like this. The loss dealt a major blow to her confidence. She was getting frazzled, and Ray was the least of her problems. Neighbors were talking nonstop about the wickedness on the Gunnis farm. One reported seeing a belt of knives tucked underneath Belle's dress. Then one day, Belle's daughters showed up to school in tears, full of welts and still crying from a whipping Belle gave them. When the teacher asked what they did to deserve such a beating, the girls told her they were trying to get into the cellar. It didn't take long for that story to circulate and for more questions to surface. It had been two years since Bell sent Jenny Olson to college, and Jenny hadn't returned letters to any of the friends and family who wrote to her. Most were told Jenny went to college in Los Angeles. Others were told by Bell she went to college in Minnesota. Then Bell told everybody, Jenny is engaged now. She'll be home for a visit soon. She figured the lie would satisfy townsfolk for a spell. Bell's loose ends were piling up like Thanksgiving leftovers. Swanhild Gunnis was much older now, old enough to put together the pieces of Bell's vile double life, old enough to connect the skulking man to Bell, who meant to have her killed, a failure on the part of Julius Trulison, 
Bell thought. Last, but certainly not least, Ossel Helgeline, Andrew's brother and closest friend. As the weeks passed with no word from Andrew, Ossel was worried his brother got in trouble with the law. Ossel was surprised to learn about Andrew's secret love interest, one Bell Gunnis, a rich Norwegian widow living in, An- living in Indiana. So when Andrew, nobody heard from him, Ossel went to Andrew's house, found all his letters. When Bell received She should Ossel- have added that to the list of things they were supposed to bring. Right. Yeah. Bring the letters I sent you too, by the way. When Bell received Ossel's letters, she expected to be easily rid of him with a few well-constructed lies. On March 27th, 1908, she wrote to Ossel and explained that she too would like to know of Andrew's whereabouts. She claimed he left in January to find his brother who owned a gambling house in Aberdeen. She rambled some and then wrote, when Andrew didn't find his brother, he went to other places, Chicago and New York. Bell wrote Ossel again on April 11th, offering new possibilities and as to Andrew's disappearances, his disappearance, even suggesting a half-crazed farmhand may have done something to his brother Andrew. Essentially, Bell related aspects of Ray Lamphere's story and her attempts to persecute him, but she illuminated the tale in such a way that made her look innocent and Ray possibly being Andrew's murderer. On April 24th, Bell wrote Ossel again. This time she insinuated that Andrew ran into trouble along the way and possibly fled to Norway as a result, or he went to Norway to find their other brother. Then Bell suggested, Ossel, why don't you just sell the farm and relocate to Laporte with me to await your brother's return? Ossel wasn't buying it. He discovered Andrew emptied his bank accounts and contacted the National Bank of Laporte. They told him about the massive cash withdrawal. On April 27, 1908, Bell received a letter from Ossel. I'm coming to Laporte to investigate my brother's disappearance. Don't do it. Just don't. Just... Bell's heart fluttered with anxiety, but she remained cool and focused, and she developed a plan. She called her lawyer and said she needed an, she needed an updated will, telling him, I'm afraid Lamphere is going to kill me and burn my house down. Her will, everything, was to be left to her three children. Not included in the will was her oldest child who went to college, Jenny Olson. Bell placed the will along with 730 bucks into a safe deposit box. Before going home, she bought toys for the kids, some cream puffs, and a five-gallon can of kerosene. Seems legit. These items belong together, all of them for sure. All of them belong together in a purchase. She cooked a great feast that night for Joe, her farmhand, and the kids. After dinner, Belle made Joe eat an orange. It's a treat for all your hard work, she told him. Obviously, the orange was poisoned. And Joe groggily went to bed early. He awoke a few hours later to find Belle Gunnis standing over him. Is everything okay? He asked. I just wanted to see if you were asleep, Belle replied, and slipped out of the room. Joe thought he saw a hammer hiding in the folds of Belle's dress. It was the last time anyone saw Belle Gunnis alive. Okay, I'm going to say it. Fucking finally. Like, (laughs) how, how did she make it this far? He fell back asleep and woke again to the acrid smell of smoke and fire filling his room. When he went to open the door, it was locked. Joe kicked the door with all his power, but it wouldn't budge. It was bolted from the outside on the top and bottom. 
His only choice was to jump out of the second story window, which he did. When he hit the ground, he popped up and made haste to save Belle and her kids. But it was too late. The fire was roaring and unstoppable. In spite of considerable efforts by neighbors and the community at large, the home of Belle Gunnis was annihilated by a strange-smelling fire, the kerosene. It was clear... Not the, not the rotting people. Definitely not. Okay. The kerosene, like if you burn Thank something you. with kerosene, it's bad. Bad smell. It was clear the fire was set intentionally, which meant arson. Sheriff Albert Smutzer arrived on scene shortly after 5 a.m. Who would do such a thing to the home of Belle Gunnis? All whispers spoke one name. Ray Lamphere, Belle's jilted lover and former farmhand, was arrested that very day. The search effort on the Gunnis farm went on all day. It was late afternoon when one of the searchers hit something soft in the cellar corner. Onlookers gathered as ashes were brushed from the body and the charred face of a young girl appeared. Then, a second girl was found, followed by the body of a woman holding a young child close to her chest, presumably Belle and her youngest son, Philip. As more ashes were brushed away, there was a surprising discovery. Little Lucy had a hole in her forehead. Philip's legs were gone at the knees. Bones protruded from the flesh of all three children. But the most shocking discovery was the woman. She didn't have a head. Raylam Fear was charged with murder and arson. But he refused to confess. Albert Smutzer insisted he was guilty. Word of the event quickly spread across the nation. And they should have thrown him a parade. As researchers looked... I mean, they kind of do parade. You'll see... As researchers looked for the missing head of Bell Gunnis, the man whose arrival sparked this chain of events, Ossel Helgeline, arrived in town by train. Determined as ever to find out what happened to his brother Andrew, Ossel met with Sheriff Smutzer, who more or less dismissed him, as he did so many others who came with claims that Bell was a murderer. So... And I will say, in Smutzer's defense, this is the day of the fire that he shows up. So he's got a lot on his plate. So Smutzer pawned Ossel off on Swan Nicholson. Remember him? He was at Bell's house the night Peter Gunnis got killed by a falling meat grinder, as one does. I wonder how many people actually got killed that year, like, by a falling meat grinder. Don't they have those statistics? <laughs> we, we need a... Yeah. Needless to say... Old Swan Nicholson shared his theories about Bell being a murderer with Ossel. Ossel went to the Gunnis farm the next day to help in the search and recovery effort. He spent several days digging the rubble with other volunteers but found nothing. He walked the 43-acre farm looking for signs of disturbed ground. Eventually, Ossel found a recently dug hole in the garden. That's just a rubbish hole, someone said. With a few minutes of digging... The putrid smell that hit Ossel in the face caused him to gag. A smell so appalling you can taste it in your throat. Ossel hit a gunny sack. When he lifted it, there was an arm and a body with a neck underneath. Get the sheriff. When Smutzer returned, the dig resumed. They uncovered a rancid soup of slimy, oozing, bloody human body parts, severed arms, legs cut from above the ankle, random fingers hacked off at the joints, mismatching feet, and a severed head with all its teeth remaining but one. Despite of its gruesome, 
melting jelly-like condition. Okay, that was a lot. Wow. (laughs) Ossel recognized the decapitated head of his brother, Andrew. An autopsy later showed Andrew was expertly butchered. You had me at rancid soup. Like, I kind of, I had an idea what was coming there. Oh, buddy, we ain't done. Oh, good. As the Gunnis property was more closely examined, many areas were noted as being slightly caved in, a sign of decaying matter below the ground. It was May 5th, 1908, what would have been Jenny Olson's 18th birthday when they found her skull with long blonde trusses among a mass of bones. A morgue was set up in the shed. After excavating the various heads, torsos, bones, legs, and arms, they determined that particular hole was four bodies. Two men, a woman, and the female adolescent, Jenny. I just want to say, picture a hole dug in the ground, and then suddenly you hit a certain spot, and it becomes an earthy crockpot of human body parts and bones, wet, oozing, shiny, dirty, gross. It's like a bowl of noodles, but all the noodles are body parts, and the bowl is a hole okay, dug into the ground. that is enough. Already, I'm going to have a hard time using my stupid crock pot now. And, like, I mean, dude. An earthy crock pot of gross. human stew. And noodle parts. Come on. Are like, you calling me out for not shying away from the morbid details, Don Palumbo? It is like a people hot dish here. Like, it, uh, yes. do not say that in like, the ground. Is, it is a people hot okay. dish. That's perfect. No, no, it's not. That wasn't. That wasn't to entice you. You're to supposed do more. to just eat hot dish, mm. not. Inf- yeah. Okay. The macabre case on the Gunnis farm spiraled out to levels of depravity never before seen. The farmyard became known as Bell's graveyard. Rotting human parts and corpses of men, women, and children were uncovered en masse. Bell's butchery was ruthlessly scientific and efficient. Poisons, carving knives, gunny sacks, and quicklime. Bell Gunnis was an assembly line of death. What does is, what is quicklime do? Quicklime accelerates in decomposition. So when they would bury the bodies, she would pour quicklime all over everything to accelerate in all of the decomposition. I'm going to Li- say that it probably just added to the soup, I feel like. Oh, yeah. Like, okay. Limbs were found often with the ends of the bones smashed from a hammer and the faces disintegrated by quicklime. Nobody knew exactly how many bodies were on the farm. Some holes had more feet than hands and more legs than arms. A lot of bodies were missing the head. And there was no sorting system for the limbs as they were dug up. The bodies of the children discovered in the cellar were confirmed by the coroner to be Bell's children. However, the coroner would not confirm Bell Gunnis dead without more proof. Not without the head. I feel like that's fair. I mean, you know, it's 1908. And I mean, this is like our own Michael Myers thing. Like, I mean, he keeps coming back for, you know, like the 13th Halloween. Like this is, this is going to keep going here. I feel like it. The longer the search went on without the head, the more doubt people had that Bell Gunnis was really dead. In the days following the fire, scores of reports came in from eyewitnesses who claimed they saw the widow fleeing. Smutzer's office was bombarded with reports of Bell Gunnis sightings. The farm became a tourist attraction. 
Tens of thousands of onlookers, many dressed in their Sunday best, turned out to see the ghastly display. Corpses were everywhere, bundles of rotting human flesh and human body parts. Trains to Laporte were packed full, sold out. People waited in line for hours to get on a train to glimpse Bell Gunness's butchery farm of slaughter. Humans are weird, man. That's... <sighs> Every newspaper in the country picked the story up, and as people caught wind of the murder farm, hundreds came to Laporte hoping to find a trace of their lost loved ones. The corpses were mostly too decomposed to identify, but the trinkets left behind, discovered in the oozing pools of human remains, were abundant. Left behind keepsakes became the key method in which people found closure for the lost. On June 5th, with many acres of land yet to be uncovered and the lake dragged. There was a lake right next to her property. They never dragged Why it. Why wouldn't there be? I- yeah, convenient, right? Sheriff Albert Smutzer shut down the efforts and declared the investigation concluded. Smutzer and the prosecutor said Bell is dead and all the bodies have been recovered. And the guilty party, Ray Lamphere, is already in custody. Lucky for Ray, he had Wirt Worden as his attorney. And Ray's trial was every bit as dramatic as you could possibly imagine. Wirt's defense of Ray Lamphere was one for the ages. Smutzer presented a theory. Sheriff Smutzer and the prosecution, they presented a theory. Bell's head exploded in the fire. But the explosion left behind her bridge work with a gold tooth. Okay, who are the... <laughs> never mind. Her head blew up. Dawn, even, fires are hot. Mind. Heads explode. Perfectly reasonable. Absolutely. Not who to mention I? the bridge work. Yeah. Yes. You're not a lawyer. The bridge work was coincidentally found by a man hired by Smutzer. Multiple witnesses countered they saw the bridge work get planted as evidence because they say they found the bridge work in the cellar because her head blew up and shot it across the room. Laporte police chief Clinton Cochran said Bell left the headless corpse of a victim and escaped into the night. Wirt, Wirt Worden, strongly believed Sheriff Smutzer was a Bell Gunness accomplice, which is why Smutzer wanted to prove Bell was dead and Ray was guilty. Wirt also introduced evidence. Bell was riding in a buggy with a small woman just days prior to the fire. That woman was never seen again. And when the, when the defense said that woman was the corpse in there, the prosecution countered that, well, the reason her corpse was so tiny was because uh, when you burn, you shrink. So Science. Yeah. Wirt claimed it was that lady's body in the cellar and not that of Belle Gunness because Belle was way bigger than this woman. You know, Belle was a tall, stout, busty woman. And they're like, well, no, that, that couldn't have been Belle. It was a tiny lady. And they're like, well, you know, you shrink when you burn. I, I got nothing left. Although Ray was ultimately convicted of arson and murder and sentenced to two to 21 years in prison. That, that's a, that's a wide range. Right. Like, two to 21 years. What? The rampant speculation of what really happened to Bell Gunness has never stopped, and very few believe it was her 
in that basement. Before we go any further, Don, what do you think? Was that Bell Gunnis in the basement there? I'm no scientist. I think it was Bell? Yeah, for sure it was, right? No! All right. No one truly knows what happened, but here are the theories. Ray Lamphere died about a year later from tuberculosis. In his final months, he befriended a fellow inmate, Harry Myers. It's your favorite when there's a jailhouse. Oh, the jailhouse uh, confessions, yeah, man. Yeah, I always yeah, They're always in my story somehow. Mm-hmm. So Ray told Harry Myers the secrets of Bell's life, including his own involvement in all the killings. He said Bell paid him 500 bucks to help her get away. The body in the cellar was that of a woman Bell offered a room to. And the reason the charred corpse didn't have a head was simple. Too many teeth, too much hair, and the wrong nose. Ray cut her head off and buried it. After killing her children and carefully placing them in the cellar, Bell met Ray. And oh, okay. he took hang her- on one yeah. second. I need to go back to that. Too yeah. many teeth. So it's easier instead of pulling some teeth, it's easier to cut her head off. I'm, I for again, sure. Yes. I'm, I'm, I mean, do you want to pull? Like I'm over, I know well, I'm many, overthinking. Do you want to pull this? thirty teeth or whatever, or do you want to cut off one head? It's just it's, I know we're not Midwest math, but let's do the numbers here. One head or a bunch of teeth? Way I easier. A, I don't think I should answer that. And it was and just B, the nose too. Like, the nose. It's a charred corpse. You're the not going to see the, the nose. nose. Like, whatever. Just keep going. I'm, I'm done. So after Belle slaughtered her children and carefully placed them in the cellar with the imposter corpse, Belle met Ray, who took her to a rendezvous. Ray didn't know who Belle was meeting. In her possession, a satchel with $30,000, jewelry, and other valuables. It's a million bucks, folks, not counting the jewelry and valuables. She's got a million bucks with her. Ray dropped her off and then returned to the farm and set the fire. The plan was for Belle to send him her, her false teeth to plant in the cellar. Belle was living in Chicago, disguised as a man and sending Ray letters under the codename Big Six. He also told Harry... There was a bag of diamonds and jewels still buried on the property. If Did this she is, her, she give herself that name, Big Six. What? It, this like, is according to Ray. Okay. This is according to Ray. Big Six was actually Bell, and she had been sending him letters. And on the day that Ray died in prison, he got this huge bouquet of flowers that nobody knows who that who would have sent him. He had no family, nobody. Now, if it Ray's story is true, who was at the rendezvous? Could it have been Albert Smutzer? Smutzer seemed to have a lot of money in the wake of all this. One theory alleges Smutzer agreed to help Belle escape, but instead killed her at the rendezvous, taking the $30,000 and burying her body, which he later dug up to produce the planted bridgework evidence. There's nothing in Smutzer's history that shows he personally was a violent man. Although he did have money following this, these affairs, it wasn't a substantial amount. Wasn't it more likely he helped Belle get away that she paid him to cover her tracks? After all, witnesses claim to have seen his red roadster cruising around in the wee hours of the night before the fire. It should also be noted, Harry Myers shared everything Ray told him with attorney Wirt Worden after being released. Then, Harry went in search of the diamonds. Then one day, Harry was just gone. Was Big Six 
actually Bell Gunnis? Or was Big Six the crime syndicate who Bell worked with for years hiding bodies? It was one of them from the syndicate who met Bell at the rendezvous. The levy crime lords were supposed to help her get away, but instead they killed her because she knew too much and she had a shit pile of money. Big Six was actually the crime syndicate and led Ray to believe Bell was still alive. It was them sending the letters. Big Six killed Harry Myers after he found the diamonds on her property. Then there's the confession of Julius Truelson. He wrote a 19-page confession detailing his years of assisting Bell commit mass murder and hide bodies. Bell helped Trulson murder his wife. Afterward, he worked for he worked for her over all the years, helping to kill Jenny, the daughter who went to college, and also many of the men who were her marks. Trulson was one of Bell's most reliable and regular accomplices. Trulson was also a liar and a scoundrel with a checkered past whose family was likely to have spent considerable effort and money to hide what a monster he really was. His story changed and was even recanted at one point among the many things Julius Trulson confessed. Bell, quote, Bell told us one of her victim's brothers was coming to town. She wanted me and Ray to help set the fire to the farm, and then she wanted me to flee with her to San Francisco. But me and Ray decided to double-cross her before she could do it to us. Ray lost the coin toss, so he had to be the one who murdered Bell and her kids and set the fire to cover Bell's crime and ours. Bell was cunning. She ran her business of farming, murder, insurance fraud, abortion, and body hiding with ruthless efficiency, as efficient as any CEO of the era. And Bell was successful for so long, she felt untouchable. This led to making mistakes. Over the years, here's what we know for sure that she accumulated. This is the tabulation from Matt Sorensen. $8,000. From Peter Gunnis, $4,000. From Charles Erdman, $5,000. From Herman Kenitzer, $5,000. From the fire at the Gunnis store, $3,500. From the fire in the Gunnis home, $1,500. From Ole Budsberg of Wisconsin, $2,000. From John C. Moe, $1,500. From Andrew Helgeline, $7,000. From George Berry, $1,500. From Henry Gerholt, $1,000. From four men other than those above whose bodies were found in Bell's graveyard, estimated at $1,000 each. From 15 other men who were in correspondence with Bell and mysteriously disappeared, $1,000 each for a total of $48,300 equal to $1.3 million today. And that doesn't include any of the money from the kids who died or the children or the children she fostered, nor does it include whatever she made on the abortions or the body disposal. There's also considerable reason to believe Bell actively worked with serial killer Johann Hoke throughout the years, sharing their murderous talents 
resources, and knowledge. Their marks were both mostly people from the homeland who emigrated to the Midwest. They also both almost exclusively acquired their marks by using matrimonial agencies. Although no one can say it with certainty, Johann Hoke was probably running mail and letters to Bell Gunnis and assisting in the operation of matrimonial agencies. It's believed Bell operated three to four of them under fake names and shell companies. Train operators confirmed a man with Hoke's description consistently made stops in Michigan City, then Laporte for many years. Could it be one of the associates from the matrimonial agencies that Bell worked with who killed her, that were supposed to meet her at the rendezvous? After all, several people connected to those businesses were also known killers. Ultimately, Bell Gunnis had a very successful run and brazenly flaunted it for all to see. She and Ray wore victims' coats, their clothes, their jewelry. They drove their cars in the streets openly in front of everyone. Bell accompanied men to the bank, had them withdraw their money, and then they disappeared. It happened regularly for decades. People entered the farm never to be seen again. The lies she told had many versions. Hell, she even had the audacity to tell Ossel Helgeline to sell his dead brother's property and move in with her. The killing spree of Bell Gunnis spanned more than 30 years and is believed to have claimed the lives of more than 40 people. She was absolutely dedicated and calculating in her efforts to lure men to death. Bell wrote more than 80 letters to Andrew Helgeline over the course of 18 months, all while murdering and butchering other men who she regularly sent letters to, managing her farm, raising her kids, getting product to market, and sleeping with her, har- with her farmhands who said she was an irresistible lover. But everything Bell built unraveled almost instantly when she received word from Ossel Helgeline that he was coming to town to investigate his brother's disappearance. You have to consider, by the time she got that letter, he was already on his way to Laporte. Everything she did in the moments after receiving that letter was carefully planned and orchestrated. Perhaps the escape was something she planned in the back of her mind for many years. The reality that all her murderous work The industrial scale of whole-scale massacre, kidnappings, theft, and fraud might not last forever. Shouldn't it go without saying, Bell Gunnis always had an escape plan in mind. Wow, that's all I got. Sources. For this episode, the primary source for today's episode is America, the book America's Femme Fatale, the story of serial killer Bell Gunnis by Jane Simon Amason. Again, that's America's Femme Fatale, the story of serial killer Bell Gunnis, Jane Simon Amason, the primary source for today's episode. Also, the website americasbesthistory.com. This episode, again, is brought to you in part by Manscaped. You can get 20% off and free shipping with the code MidwestMurder at Manscaped.com. That's 20% off and free shipping with the code MidwestMurder at Manscaped.com. Also brought to you in part by the DVCC in Minot. Please, 
you know, if you really want to do something for people who are facing terrible violence and domestic crisis in their life, you can donate to the DVCC and Minot, who supports Midwest Murder, at the website courageforchange.org. Don Palumbo. Joan Alanto. Stay for the murder. Come for the Midwest. Come for the Midwest. Stay for the murder. I think oh, which way do we do it? it? Come for the Midwest. Stay for the murder. Ah, it's too much butchery for me to remember. <laughs> Yeah, I'm I'm spent. This is this Thank you ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, thank you that all so much episode. for being here. Thank you very very much.